I wouldn't do the Kickstarter again. <laughs> so, I'll, but I mean, that's that's uh, that's probably experience you have to have from the very first hire. We actually implemented the process, which is um, which takes time. Um, but then at the very end, because you for the first employees, you can't uh, have too many people. You're wrong with your uh, thoughts on them. So if they don't perform uh, as you desire, that will throw back your whole company. Uh, one of the main things we always do is a so-called hospitation. So they stay in our company for four to five hours. Um, on the one hand, doing some sample tasks, which allow us to see how good they are. But on the other hand, allow them to have a deeper insight of what the, the actual work is about. And then going to various people in our company to see how they work, uh, do lunch with them and so on to just get to know them. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Growing a company that aims at having a sustainable impact is not easy. That's why I created Mission First. In each episode, I interview one entrepreneur who has a sustainable mission and who has recently gone through the difficult first years successfully. Together, we discuss their challenges and what they have learned on the way. We go into detail with a specific focus on company culture leadership, financing, growth, and business strategy. That way, you'll learn hands-on tips on how to build a better future and a successful company too. Today, my guest is Christophe Berger, the founder and CEO of Villisto and Planet Sustainability. With Villisto, he has developed a digital heat management system with self-learning radiator thermostats, which reduce CO2 emissions and heating costs by up to 32%. He has founded his company in 2014, directly after finishing his university degree in energy system. Since then, the company has now 21 full-time employees and they are currently raising their Series A's funding round. They won the German Innovation Award 2020 for Climate and Environment. They are rated 4.7 out of 5 stars by their employees on Kununu, which is the German Glassdoor. So they have an extremely good reputation as an employer. We will focus this episode on learning from his experience on how to build the right team for a seed round. And we will also talk about uh, his new online event that brings innovators and B2B startups together called Planet Sustainability. So if you are planning to raise seed funding with your startup, or if you are building and growing a green tech company with a hardware and digital product in the B2B world, this episode is definitely for you. Christoph, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? Hi, Gilles. I'm very good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, that's my pleasure. Let's start at the beginning. Which person has inspired you to become an entrepreneur? Um, I wouldn't say it's, it's a, a, a single person, but very many different things that come up to or, edit, or are being added up to, to be, become the person I am and the entrepreneur I am. But uh, if I would pick out a person, I'd say it's always Steve Jobs. 
very good reference. Uh, it's also one of my, the reason I actually left my job at the time, after watching his famous speech. What's your personal mission on Earth? Um, also, I mean, you've already mentioned that my background is energy systems. So I've, I've always been into optimizing things and using those skills for a better environment and climate. So um, I'm very good in um, using my skills and optimization in, in, in terms of heat, energy, thermodynamics, and so on. So um, I think it's always good if the people use their skills uh, in, in the right sense. And for me, that's actually uh, climate protection. Um, and I think uh, also my background is very vital to pursue that way, actually. Crucial indeed. So you are the founder of Vilisto. Can you explain me in a few words what your company is doing and what's what's say what's your mission if it's if, if it's different from yours? So with Velisto, we save companies and municipalities energy and CO2 emissions. As you said, sometimes up to 32% um, with our automated heat management. Um, we've noticed that office buildings and also schools and universities are nearly or very often uh, heated 24-7 because uh, room data is missing for the control of the building. So uh, the building management might not know which temperatures or occupancies are in the room. So we've developed a radiator thermostat, uh, which has a presence, presence detection integrated. And based on those sensors, we can learn room behavior and control the heating based on the actual demand. So if you look into an office, it would be preheated before you come in the morning, kept to the desired temperature whenever you're there, and turned down saving energy whenever you don't use the room. Very curious about the, the technical part of that. Uh, you said they have a sensor for, to detect the presence, uh, because I was actually wondering if you were using cameras for that, for example. Can you talk about what what kind of sensors uh, you, you you use for that yeah sure so next to room climate sensors like temperature and humidity we use three sensors for the occupancy detection which is uh, movement so passive infrared sound and light and based on those sensors we um, take measurements every minute of the room and aggregate their data to learn behavior patterns um the the idea behind that is basically um, that you don't need any external sensors to detect the occupancy, which would work very fine with a movement sensor. But as soon as something is standing in front of the radiator or the thermostat is uh, directed sidewards or something, those sensors wouldn't work anymore. And thus, especially based on the sound sensor, um, you can uh, get quite good data about those occupancies. Um, yeah, that's, that's actually how we do it. Very, very smart. Um, can you tell me a bit about the numbers to understand at which stage you are right now? You told me you had like 21 um, employees, full-time employees. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, we have another uh, 11 students, I think, 11 or 12 students. So we're 30, 32, 33 people currently, but full-time people actually 21, yes. And in terms of um, revenue, what kind of revenue, like ballpark, are we looking at? Yeah, we're, we're still in the six digits. That would change next year, I guess. Okay, let's hope for that. Uh, so talking about financing, how much have you raised so far in funding, more or less? Yeah, if, a few million. So uh, a bit more than two. 
have you already like broke even yet? No, not yet. Not yet. Good. So that gives us a good idea of where you are now and what you do. So you are basically in the, you, you found product market fit and you are in the, the growth phase right now. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say we're, we're at the start of the growth phase. So we've, uh, we've built up some really good traction, built up the team. Uh, so we're ready to scale more. And that's where we're actually at right now. Yep. Perfect. Tell me a bit about the, the first steps. So how does the story start? You're just out of college and you decide to start Vilisto apparently. So how does that happen? What are your first steps? It actually already started in university. So uh, within my studies in my master's, you had to do different projects. And one of them was related to um, using data to predict room temperatures in an unknown room, right? So if you look at buildings and if you build a new building, it's quite obvious, you know, all the parameters of the walls, of the windows, etc. But if you have existing buildings, those data usually doesn't exist. So... Um, or they're not accessible. So I was using algorithms to uh, learn how the room will behave in a future of like two to three hours based on the weather forecast. And um, that was actually the initial step to think about, well, if I know how the room will behave, I can also yeah, influence how it's being heated in an efficient manner. Um, and at that time, actually, I was studying uh, in UC Berkeley as one of my abroad semesters. And um, the thermostat Nest was bought from Google, um, I think, for $3.2 billion, right? Um, and I was thinking about, okay, there, there, there's some music in that market. Um, how does that look like in Europe? And we have different heating systems or, uh, than, than in America, where most of, it, most of it is HVAC, and we have those classical warm water radiators. Um, and at the same time, a founding center or like helping students founding a company at our university founded itself. And, um, we, yeah, kind of got in touch with them and, uh, they only had like a banner on the campus saying, do you have an idea? Come and talk to us. And I'm like, oh yeah, I've got a lot of ideas. Um, <laughs> let, let, let's see which they find most interesting. <laughs> um, and they sent me to a hackathon. Uh, from a large energy corporation, uh, a utility, and um, we won a prize with not my core team now, but former time. So in 2014, it was just two friends of mine. Um, but that brought me to, you know, looking for a team and applying for governmental funding. In Germany, we have that exist fund uh, where you get some start money, let's say. Um, and that worked out. So it is, it is more of a, yeah, many things happening after another leading me to actually founding the company. Um, yeah, so based on a university project, but then in the end uh, through consultancy, which was available at a university um, and a government state funding program. But So you had the initial idea at the university, you, you work on it on this hackathon with friends, you said, and then you got this like grant options and you come back to Germany and do you start the company alone? Oh yeah. So okay. So um, the the ideas arose before and after my uh, my studies abroad. But actually, the hackathon and everything was here in Hamburg, in Germany. Um, and after that, I didn't found with the people I was with the hackathon on, but uh, I was actually looking for other members. And uh, one of them found at the university, and one of in my let's say second degree friends cycle. So. 
Um, we were three people founding. Um, actually, one of the founders left after half a year and we were sourcing uh, our third founder now, Christian, uh, through a job vacancy. Mm. Uh, we were just sourcing for co-founders in the area of sales and business development. Okay, so that, and you just put the ad on the regular like job portals? Yeah, actually, yes. Uh, we had, I think, 46 applications or something. And when you, to find the, the, the second co-founder, not the third one, you said you, you went through your, your your acquaintances or like word of mouth. How do you proceed? Do you like, how long did it take you to find that person? You just talk to all your friends, you call all of them, you post on Facebook? Mm, no, it's a, it's a word of mouth thing, I'd say. So at least how it happened with us um it is a, a friend I, I've known for many years, but only as uh, a friend of my friends, basically. And uh, I was just talking to all my all my friends about the ideas I had, and which is probably the the first way you go and you know talk to your uh, first degree people and and ask them about that idea you have. And at that point, it popped out that oh yeah, I know uh, Lasse. He's he's not really uh, happy in his job right now, and he wants to move back to northern Germany because he was in Munich at that time. And uh, yeah, he he uh, by incident had the right skills also to complement the team. So um, yeah. And and what was his uh, like um, background? Because the inter interesting thing is you started as so on LinkedIn. You were like more the founder and you're more the product developer and then you turn to be the CEO. What was his background? Correct. Yeah, so as my background is energy systems, uh, his background was computer science and Christian's background is behavioral economics. Um, and I uh, indeed actually moved from an initial product development and also also using the algorithms and implementing the first version of it to a more of the business development, financial and uh, recruiting part or personal uh, HR management. And we employed our very first employee, for example, is um, a PhD in control systems who overtook my parts in the technical terms then. Okay. And did you already have the, the, the grant before you managed to attract your, your second co-founder or did you, did you get it or apply with, to, like, for it together? Yeah, we actually had the grant already. We were running half a year with the grant already, uh, and it's running. It's a one-year program. Um, so after half a year, we swapped one of the founders, which was uh, a guy who uh, came from the economics area as like a consultancy. Um, so that's what his job was initially, and he went back to that job. So we had to switch the founders there. So we ended up with Lasse and Christian, which is a very good. Um, let's say, highly complementary, but very diverse founding team. And th that's a very, very interesting part here. You tell me if you can talk about it or not, but uh, when you have to swap co-founders like that, how did you handle and manage all the equity shares and everything? Did you just like sell, like uh, did the co-founder leaving just like sold his shares? Yeah, so, um, I'd say there's no other option. Uh, you wouldn't find investors if there is like dead shares or people with dead shares running around who don't add value to the company anymore. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, you basically, as, as soon as the company doesn't have any value yet, and we didn't even have an MVP by that. So um, 
it's it's such an early stage that if you then leave, uh, you you have to buy back everything. Um, to be fair, you could, in our case, you could have set up better terms at the very beginning to handle those events, which we handled manually now. But uh, I would always set up proper terms between the founders of vesting and how long you have to be in the company to even get a single share. Mm. Okay. Like like the investors do as well. Yeah. So what? How would you proceed right now? What would be a typical case? Like, would you would you would you vest the equity shares in on, on one year with a cliff, or would you make it progressive? What what would be your ideal scenario right now if you started the company today? Yeah, I mean the 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 standard one uh, we use and we used in the past, and I see also as a uh, as a good one for starting off the company is like a four years vesting and at least one year cliff, maybe even two years cliff for the initial foundation. Meaning then the people get a, like a, the founders get a salary, but if they they leave, if it happens to they, to leave before one year, then they basically leave with nothing. Correct. Got it. So can you tell, tell us a bit what you do when you are the three of, of you? What is the next big milestone? The first milestone is actually to get some somewhat of a product running and get a first customer with that. And um, as soon as that worked, actually, to go to the next phase of um, building it further to a serial product you can produce in, in, in a mass, basically. That's like the product side. Um, to be fair, at the very beginning, you, you can't think of a large team you want to grow or build up because uh, you don't have the funds to do so. And what was the hardest part until like this MVP or during this MVP phase? Mm, I mean, the MVP probably has like 10%, not even 10% probably of the functionality and the workability of the products you use for a larger scale. <laughs> so uh, the hardest part is probably the weekends and the nights You have to work to fix problems and uh, yeah, work very closely with a customer because uh, the very first one trying out a, a product which is not ready yet, of course, because it's just an MVP. Um, they they know that's an MVP, but still you have to get yeah a good communication. You have to fix those problems soon, and especially in our area where you handle heat. So as soon as as it's too warm or too cold, the people will complain. So it's not like you use the software and it just breaks down, but it's rather the comfort of the people, um, which you have to take care of then. And what are the next steps after you found your first client? Is that client like trying the MVP still a client from you now? Actually not because we, uh, we pivoted a bit. So the initial um, direction we went through also with the Kickstarter was a B2C approach um, where uh, many thermostats came into the B2C market around that time and we, for our technology, we didn't have the right price point and the right value add because we didn't solve a specific problem in that market. Um, our very first customer was a housing association, so also a residential building. Um, and After we noticed the Kickstarter campaign didn't work and there's a lot of hassle with the um, housing association in terms of installation, uh, maintenance and so on, but also the business model, who buys that, where's the investor, who's the user, you've got user investor dilemmas and stuff. 
we um, pivoted to a purely B2B non-residential uh, focus, so offices and municipalities. And um, that was basically the the very or the one of the most important points we did actually to get that product market product to market fit because we didn't have it before. And in that non-residential area, you have so-called free rider problems. So the people who work in those buildings, they use the energy, but they don't pay for it personally. And that's why they're not incentivized or responsible of turning down the heating, for example, when they leave. Um, and that creates a huge uh, savings potential because you can uh, optimize or automize that process of turning the heat up and down. And before we dig into that B2B pivot, uh, can you talk a bit about the Kickstarter part? Like the Kickstarter itself, so you said that you, you realized that you, you, were, you didn't have the right fit, not, not the right price. But is there something else you've learned from that Kickstarter? So you were claiming you were pledging for 120,000 euros or dollars and you got around 12,000 euros. Um, so what have you learned from that Kickstarter? What would you do differently if you would start again now? Hmm. Uh, I wouldn't do the Kickstarter again. <laughs> so I'll, but I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's probably experience you have to have. Um, we were very inexperienced. I mean, uh, I was I was directly from university and the other two had two years of work experience, uh, but none of us had done a Kickstarter campaign or whatsoever. So um, using methodologies to get your focus, get your product to market fit and so on, um, we didn't set a focus on that at the very beginning, I'd say. And that's why um, even at the start of the Kickstarter campaign, we were able to see that this won't probably work. So... Um, already then we were thinking about switching and evaluating uh, the market segments in a very strategic way, um, which helped out very lot. But the, yeah, I mean, the Kickstarter campaign itself w was good designed, was, was good, but the, we weren't solving a problem for the market we were addressing. So th there wasn't really the chance of actually the, the campaign to work out. Okay, and when so you switch after more or less this uh, the same time or after this Kickstarter campaign to you pivot to a more B two B system where you realize there is a real need for the client. Uh, at the time, are you still? Uh, at what time do you start to have to raise some more funding or to find another grant? Um, we already found the first investors after half a year running in the in the grant. Um, and they invested at the end of the grant period, uh, which is, you know, energy is like a, a very, very large European e EU funded cleantech early stage investor. Mm -hmm. um, and they, uh, they joined us end of 2016. And we then even did another business angel round uh, in summer 2017. So uh, more and more funding rounds coming up to that. So we've done four until now. Um, yeah, and it's roughly uh, every 18 months. Yeah, and that, that was every time enough to keep you going and for, for the next phase. So w yeah. when you develop the first, when you switch to, to B2B, how do you find your first client? Mm, actually, the very first one was, mm, I wouldn't say coincidence, but... We were actually exhibiting at the Startup Con in Cologne, so a startup fair 
Um, and yeah, just, just going out public with our, our offerings and our solution. Um, and it was, it was that moment. And that's probably a good advice for all other, all other, uh, startups and founders, which are still very early. Um, if you are on a fair, um, stay to the very, very end, right? You, you, you've might notice the, the, the startups or the people leaving like, uh, 10 minutes before it's, it's over. I've already, you know, going away or leaving because there's nobody coming. And that was our first customer who came after the closure of the fair and said, oh, wait, wait, that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and yeah, he saw the potential and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to try that. And that was our first customer. And that was very, very important because you get your first reference, the first logo on your, on your homepage or whatever to uh, address new customers and say, well, I've already got one. Um, you're the next, you're still in a very, uh, thin area of like innovators you're addressing because, uh, the earlier adopters, they still wouldn't go for your solution because you don't have any references. But, um, yeah, it was just a, it's, it's a startup fair and leaving to the very, very, uh, staying until the very end, uh, to get the one person that is still scouting to get that as a customer. That's a very good tip. I think it's, it's, it's part of like, uh, these conferences as well as, as like, for example, of being part of, uh, you know, the drinks and, uh, not going home after, after directly at, you know, at five when the official fair is over, sometimes also can really help. To, yeah. to build your network at the time. So the first client was sometime in 2017. What happened? What are the next like big milestones until now? So uh, that, that first customer still had the, the MVP solution. <laughs> so we, we, we didn't do like a one-time MVP, but we produced 150 devices actually. Um, and the next milestone was, of course, to continue developing the system uh, to a standard where uh, we're able to produce more than 150 devices, uh, devices and also for price, which is not uh, double as much as I can generate revenues from, which you know, uh, if you do very manual MVPs, they're just too expensive. Um, that took us roughly 12 months. So by the end of uh, 2017, we had a product which um, can be produced by the, let's say, 100, 200,000 or something. Um, that, was, that was one milestone, but also, of course, onboarding new investors like business angels to also get expertise into the company um, of, ex, uh, of, of founders who've already exited the companies, who've managed funds, uh, do restructurings, and so on. So uh, that was very important. And also getting... Uh, we didn't really uh, have first employees by then. Um, I think there were by the end of 2017, but, you know, working with students, interns to get some feeling and yeah, get your head into uh, working with more people than just as founders who by then knew each other very well. How, how do you find these interns, by the way? Because I'm also, I'm, I'm actually looking for some intern and some partners to work with me now so i'm curious how do you find them then um they're different different ways i mean on the one hand it's always about network so we have a very very good network to the university so most of the students and interns we have and had are uh technical guys or girls and um yeah because we 
I mean, myself, but also other employees here who studied or did their PhD at our university have very good connections to the institutes. And yeah, also my, my, my friends, I'd say half of my friends are actually doing their PhD at university or did in our postdoc now. Um, so you have a broad network into that area. But on the other hand, actually um, use the, the official channels of posting vacancies. So um, in, for the universities, for example, Hamburg, but also other cities, they have the Studierendenwerk. And uh, through that, you can post job inquiries and then you, you just, you get, it depends on your topic, you get good or uh, loads of applications actually. Um, for working students more than for interns, to be fair. Um, but yeah, so we, we actually, within, within the time we've building up that company, we've, we've, uh, we've tried out various platforms to source for people and, uh, currently then only focus on the ones which are valuable for that specific region I'm looking for and where I get traffic. So we've got good experiences in that. So do you mean here platforms beside the university, your network, uh, Job portals, you mean, in that case? Yeah, I mean, for for example, I would I would always put on put any job uh, open jobs to Indeed, for example, right? Because it's on the one hand for free, they've got good Google reach. Um, you know, I, I would use the university if, if I want to go for students. Uh, sometimes it actually, I mean, not in the times now with COVID, but uh, before that, it's very good to use the, the blackboards to just pin your job description. Uh, the students walk by that, that works pretty well and uh, you first have a lot of interns to help you work on the product you get the product ready to be like uh, produced at scale uh, is there anything you you can share about you know the business models uh, you've considered or went through and or some learnings about pricing that you can share with our audience mm, yes I mean We were always, uh, right from the start, thinking about uh, different business models to, to work with. Um, and we were always in the situation of deciding for the one or the other because there are different influential factors. So um, our first business model is actually selling the devices as hardware and putting a small service fee on top to have a contract with the customer for a longer time. But you don't really get much recurring revenues out of it. For us as a hardware company, it was always important to generate a lot of cash at the beginning because otherwise we would have to secure that as funding, uh, which is very uh, expensive in equity. Um, right from the start, we were thinking about, for example, performance contracting um, because we were talking to a lot of utilities and energy service providers. Um, and, and performance contracting is basically a way to implement your technology uh, for free, and then you participate on the savings you generate, right? So the better you perform, the more money you earn, but also the more the customer saves, uh, which are very attractive models, but you need a lot of uh, cash for that, actually. So those are sometimes models which can't be, can't be implemented at the very beginning. Also, for example, a renting model. Uh, we implemented that this year, um, and... Uh, You need to have financing partners for that. But let's say if you want to do leasing or renting of your devices, those partners need a specific minimum volume of money you earn or revenues you generate so that they find it attractive at all. So 
it is always a question of in which stage you are at and how much revenue and how many customers you have. So um, we're thinking about those models at the very early beginning, but uh, weren't able to implement them right from the start because we either didn't have the cash or the volume or so on. Yeah. And now what's the final like a business model that you have right now? Uh, so we're offering uh, mainly two models. The one is uh, actually the same as before. We're selling the hardware and having a service contract on top, which is very relevant for every owner-occupier. So companies or municipalities owning their buildings and using them themselves, um, and they want to keep most of the savings to themselves. For um, companies and municipalities who don't have that much cash, so they can't invest, and also for tenants of buildings, Uh, we're offering a renting model, uh, which um, orientates itself by the amount of heat costs you have as of today. So we'll take a portion of the money you pay on your heating bill today, uh, which is nearly an energy contracting, but it's not based on the real performance, but actually just on the past data you had. Okay. So now that you're talking about passing the, the, the step with uh, all the interns, you arrive at a time where you need to hire your first employees. And um, I think there was something very interesting that like you, we wanted to talk about uh, in terms of like you sent me the do's and don'ts about how to build the right team for a seed round. When you mean the seed round here, you mean all the different small business angels rounds that you've made. Yeah, I, I would say we've done a pre-seed, a seed, a post-seed, and a pre-series A round. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, it, it's it's hard for, let's say, inexperienced founders also then developing a hardware product, which is very capital intensive, to raise huge amounts of funds for a, a good valuation at the beginning. So you do a, a few rounds, which is not my recommendation, but in our case, um, yeah, it wasn't really... Uh, a better chance to get more money for good conditions. What would you do when you said it wouldn't be a recommendation? What would be a recommendation now? I mean, a recommendation is always to get as much money as you can get. Um, but it still has to, of course, uh, be balanced with how much equity you give away. Um, so, I mean, the government grant we got at the beginning is just 120 euros. Uh, which is very limited if you want to pay salaries, which are very low, but on the other hand, still have to develop hardware, buy stuff and all of that. Um, so that money is running out very fast. Um, yeah. And as if you don't have any customer uh, until then, because you just have an MVP, for example, and it's just like a tryout or whatever, um, it's hard to get big chunks of money if you don't uh, prove as least as a founder you've uh, you're a serial entrepreneur and you know what you're doing um so as a first time founder that's always a bit harder i guess um so every time you do this like investment round you 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 dilute a little bit the the company and your shares uh Can I ask you how, like, for example, right now in terms like the founders themselves, the founder bubble, the three of you, how much equity shares do you still have compared to the investors in total? Yeah, I mean, you can always look in the handles, I guess, so uh, that's not really a secret. <laughs> uh, the, the, the founders uh, are roughly at 50% of the company. Okay, so for a B2B 
even capital intensive company like that, that's roughly normal. No, I, w- I, w- I would say it would be normal. Like after your series A to have a good majority in the company, mm-hmm. um, which we won't have, but uh, yeah. Talking about now how to build the right team for, for all these seed rounds, because it's, it's something that you can obviously bring a lot uh, on, on that topic for our audience. You send me a few do's and don'ts. So let's go through them and, uh, and discuss them. The first do you sent me was take your time for a good and professional recruitment process. Can you iterate on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, we're very lucky with one of our investors in energy who are not only supporting you with uh, money and advice, but also, for example, hosting wor- workshops for free, which is, for example, a recruitment workshop, let's say. Uh, I, did, I actually did one with them, uh, which was like two days. Um, and it gave me a very good insight of how to structure the way to recruit people um, and also to onboard them in the company and also to know who you're actually looking for. Um, based on the applicants we had in the past, um, we, we get, get a lot of feedback in terms of, wow, that's so different than in other companies. I've, you know, I've never talked to the management before. I've never talked to those. I never had an exercise or whatever. Um, you know, so I can, I can tell you also a bit more how we, how we structure that, but from the very first hire, we actually implemented a process, which is, um, which takes time. Um, but then at the very end, because you, for the first employees, you can't, uh, have too many people you're wrong with your, uh, thoughts on them. So if they don't perform as you desire, that will throw back your whole company because it's like, 25 or the 20% of your company staff, right? So you have to be quite sure with those people. So uh, one of the main things we always do is a so-called hospitation. So they stay in our company for four to five hours. Um, On the one hand, doing some sample tasks, which allow us to see how good they are. But on the other hand, allow them to have a deeper insight of what the, the actual work is about. And then um, going to various people in our company to see how they work, uh, do lunch with them and so on to just get to know them. Um, And for example, the very first step in our uh, recruitment process is a 10-minute call. And um, most of the people say, oh, how how should I, you know, within 10 minutes explain myself and so on. But we have a very structured and efficient process for both sides actually to get an idea if that's if that could work or not. And then we'll always do a, a round table in our team basically to see if we want to go to the next phase or not. And we've start, we've, we've done that right from the beginning. Um, but to be fair, actually one of our first employees was someone I knew many years before. Um, and he was working in a different startup, uh, which didn't run very well. So, um, yeah, we basically just uh, hired him off there. And so can you detail a bit what are these different uh, steps in the process? So you start with, of course, you receive applications, you post on different job portals, university network, you filter the first like CVs, you have your first 10-minute call, which is, I guess, just to get to know the person and see if that person is not a, a psychopath or if it would fit <laughs> to the team, I guess. And what are the next steps? Yeah, so, I mean... 
uh, as soon as the people apply, um, they definitely get a direct response of that we're going to look at the application as soon as possible. Um, and as soon as we are in an actual recruitment process, so we're looking for people and not uh, getting inbound applications, uh, we are quite fast on that because we, we've built up uh, a Kanban system of tickets where you just you know monitor all applications um, because uh, when employing very uh, many people at the start of this year, we had like 650 applications or something. So um, that's like a, a lot of work to do and you have to keep track on that, right? So the very first part is a telephone call, which is not only to get to know the people and definitely not uh, the final say about if it fits to the uh, company or the, the culture because um, we would always have to get to know the people in person for that. Um, so the very first step is to, on the one hand, get the facts like salary, when could you begin, etc., but also questioning about their motivation. Uh, like wh why would they want to change their company? Why would they come to us? Uh, what's interesting for them? Explaining a bit what the job is about and um, hearing from them what they see as their skills and not. Um, to get a broad overview, basically, of, of what they bring. Um, and always with the idea that also the applicant knows more about the company and about the job to decide themselves if want to keep in that loop or not. Um, because from many companies, I always see that, you know, the applicants get asked questions, but they can't ask questions, uh, which I don't really find fair. So... Um, the second step, then, if, I, if we say, well, that's that's a good candidate, we meet them for 30 to maximum 60 minutes in person or, I mean, nowadays, rather in a video conference. Mm -hmm. um, and also depends on where they are, right? I mean, if the people are close by, um, they would uh, come around. Um, if they are in different countries, they would we would do a video call. And that's basically the first insight of um, two to three team members getting to know the person in quasi-person, right? I mean, if it's video, it's it's not as they sit in front of you, but uh, you, you you see them, you see how they behave. And it's, it's more about sometimes asking similar questions again, but also, um, yeah, just, just getting an impression of that person. And the very last and uh, final step is basically to do that hospitation I mentioned before. So four to five hours, um, uh, yeah, running through our business. Um, to be fair, within that process for every position we have, maximum three to four people do that hospitation uh, because mm -hmm. that's that's huge effort. So you have to be very sure after the second phase already. Uh, 50% get a no after the telephone call, roughly. So 50% after the 10-minute call. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would, I would say probably 50% don't even get a call, right? But the 50% having a call, uh, again, resulting 25% go to the next step, and then only three to four persons go to the hospitation. Yes. And what kind of tasks for example do you ask them to do when you said simple tasks we try to <clears throat> make up the tasks um the same way they would be in their job and or actually take actual tasks from the job so um because i mean setting up sample tasks is like you know letting them do work they would never do 
Um, so we try to actually pick out topics which are enclosed, which you can handle within half or one hour and see how you approach those topics. Um, for example, if you look for somebody who's doing office management, they, they get loads of files, for example, of invoices or whatever, or emails which come into the info at uh, uh, mailbox or whatever, and let them sort and see how and if they can already see what kind of question that is or what kind of document it is and how you would handle it. So it is actually the, the real tasks you, you would do. And let's say for programming, that is programming tasks, sometimes as tasks or sometimes as you get a sheet of paper and you explain what, what the code actually will execute and where the pitfalls are. Um, yeah. So that's the moment, for example, let, let's take a software developer. That would be the, the moment at which you start testing his uh, hard skills, hard coding skills. Yeah, some, some, especially for the coders, uh, it's already in the second step where we do some samples um, to, to get an idea of how, how, how familiar they are with the topic. Have you create, created your own like, test for that? For example, right now I'm testing uh, for, uh, like for a client of mine. I'm working and like, helping them with recruiting and I'm testing. Uh, I'm using Test Dome, which is a, an online platform where actually mostly done for or to test uh, coding skills where you can select, uh, for example, you take a full stack developers and then you have custom tests that you can select and then uh, automatically they rate the coder uh, based on, on their results. Are you using these kinds of like platforms or have you created your own tests? We've created our own tests. We don't use the platforms, let's say, yet. Um, I guess it'll depend on the size. Um, sometimes... It depends on the area, but in, in very many areas of people we're sourcing, the hardcore skills are sometimes not the most important factor. So um, those coding tests will always integrate a barrier in your uh, recruitment process. Um, it will make it longer or it will you know, make it very unpersonal. Um, to some people, um, some are used to it, some are not. And, uh, yeah, we're not at that point where we use that automated test yet. So we, we try to make real examples from the work we do. Mm -hmm. And do they do the tests for, uh, like by themselves or do they sit next to someone when like you know, watching them, what they're doing with the, with the real examples? It depends on the test. So if it's just, a, let's say, ex explain what the code is about, it's, of course, with us. Uh, if it's a, a coding example to build something, it's on their own, but then you always get a review session of, uh, you know, explaining how you approach that topic and also get a feedback on how good the result is, what you've delivered. Okay. So I think it's a good time because I have plenty of questions, but I think they, they might be answered within the next, like, uh, do's and don'ts. So the, the first one was take your time for a good and professional recruitment process, which you, you explained very well how uh extensive your uh, recruitment process is and i also agree that it's 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 the key to have the the right employees uh, the second one is implement processes to enable fast responses to applicants yeah so when i say take your time at the first point it doesn't mean that it should take like weeks until the applicants get answers so so i've, I've noticed that if you are fast and your process is fast so that the applicants get responses very fast on the one hand, you save energy and money because you are fast in recruiting. And on the other hand, you are way ahead of 
a standard company or a corporation where the process just takes for ages. Um, so uh, from, from my time, I still know that, you know, applying and then six months later, they get say, oh, yeah, we would like to invite you. That's like a no-go. So if they apply, they should get the response straight away. And if you manage to get to the first step, you should have, should have a phone call within the next week, best case, right? So to keep them in the process. And then we did hires in four weeks. If we have working students, that's sometimes one or two weeks. So when they do the hospitation part, for to be fair, for interns and working students, uh, the second step is our hospitation because there's just uh, we don't put in too much time with that because it's not a full-time employee. But um, you, we, we decide right after that, and sometimes they start next day. So um, and and that's highly appreciated by the people because they, they don't wait for ages because there's so many possibilities out of there um that uh yeah worst case other companies are faster and then yeah you have to start the whole recruitment process again and how do you do do you have some kind of automated processes because you said you have a kanban system but when you said you had six 650 applications for example for one job it means like going through the the cvs if you take 50 percent of that that's 325 people do you reply personally to these 325 people? So, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on the one hand, those 650 applicants are were, were through, I think, 20 positions we had open. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that uh, we try to automize as much as possible. Um, if it's not automizable, uh, we uh, created layouts, right? So for when your application enters, you directly get a response automated. But as soon as uh, one of the HR employees who's a working student is uh, putting up a ticket and reviewing, they do get the template answer, ah, we're currently actually reviewing, we'll get back to you within the next two days or something. So that is a semi-manual process. Um, if you talk about like having all those phone calls, you do have to use tools like Calendly or whatever to uh, get the dates straight and, and uh, get your yeah, get your appointments uh, right without you know chatting forth and back. So that has to be automated. Yeah, Calendly is fantastic for that. Are you using any other like tools than Calendly, like uh, Personio or like these recruitment softwares? Um, so. Many things, especially in the development team, uh, we're using Jira for, so Atlassian Jira, mm-hmm. um, which is very famous in, in development uh, topics. We use that for the talent management process as well, uh, but we're going to change to our CRM in the future. So we're using Zoho as a CRM, mm-hmm. and that can also um, do things like recruitment processes, but also um, talent management when they're already onboarded in their company. Um, a bit like uh, some other softwares which are out of there who specifically only concentrate on that topic. Okay. The third, do's, the third do that you sent me was source a diverse team. Can you explain me? Yeah. Yes. Um, so diverse is not only uh, different ages, different nationalities, different cultures, um, and of course, different genders. Uh, but there's there's more to it. So um, maybe talking about the genders in the first place, 
we were three guys starting the company. The first employees were guys. It was super hard to get the first girls into the team. Now we managed to get uh, uh, loads of girls in the technical team, in the business development, in sales, in the students. So that's that's really good. But that was a, a hassle. So don't wait too long uh, to employ a, a diverse gender um, uh, field in your in your in your team, basically. But what what I'm meaning with uh, source a diverse team is basically um, look for different characters. So humans usually tend to be surrounded with people that are alike to yourself. Um, and that in, 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 in the, basically in, in a long run doesn't work really good. So you, you will always have people thinking the same way and not having any innovation in your company. So try to, um, be open to employ people who think totally different to you. They have, they, of course, they have to have skills. They have to fit into your team in general. But, um, yeah, so what we are using is basically there are different ways to um, assign roles to different people. We're using a system uh, called, I think, the uh, team management system or something. So you have eight different roles, which can be, uh, directed to the inside of your company or to the outside, for example, to customers, etc. And you can be a developer, you can be a controller, you can be uh, an innovator and so on. And it's like a very short test we do. It's only four crosses in, a, in an Excel file you have to do and you get a, a direction of what type of people the, those, those people are. And um, if, you, if you do that strategically and look at this map, you'll notice that of course, many of the people in a very early stage are a very similar type, for example, an organizer, because they have to be all-rounders doing everything and they are not the specialists yet. But um, growing your company, you will notice that it makes sense to, for example, have a controller, but on the other hand, opposite, have an innovator in your company. Um, so the one is always bringing new ideas and the other one is challenging it. Um, and yeah, that, that's very crucial to to have a yeah an innovative culture, but also have uh, different opinions in your company because they will always um, make better decisions in the end in your team. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and if you manage to have these people who are very different but uh, identify themselves to the company's vision mission, then they can, even if they might be very different, they can work together very well and come up with a with a better solution. Yeah, but but to be to be fair, that's my fourth point, right? Uh, yeah. So my fourth point was employ people who strongly identify with the company's vision and mission. <laughs> so what we've noticed, I mean, the question is why would why would people work in a startup where you get usually let's say at least a bit less salary um, and you work more, right? Um, but it is it is a job you have to identify with and also with the mission behind or the vision behind the company and the people working in that company. Um, and if we have two people at the same level, all exactly the same, we will always choose the one who tends to have more identification with our vision because that will be the long-term anchor in the company. So they might have different incentives and motives and motivations as of today because of their 
um, let's say their, their standard of living in terms of salary, their location, um, and so on. But that might change in the future. But their identification to a vision of a company uh, wouldn't change that fast. So um, if you want to keep those people for a long time, don't look for people who just want to do their job, but who want to do the job for the vision and mission you're uh, pursuing. Uh, but how do you identify the people to make sure that they identify themselves to the company's vision? I'd say it's sometimes simpler than you might think. We just ask. So even in the very first step of recruitment, so the phone call, we ask the question, what are your main motives or motivations or motivators? So we will always, in every step, we'll ask them, why would they want to work for us? What is driving them? Why why exactly us, right? So, um, and you will always notice that they they will always, you know, interact with you the way that explaining around that topic gives you a sense of, do they actually burn for the same thing or are they just looking for a job, right? Um, and yeah, I would just ask, I mean, even, even if you don't uh, ask a, a, an indirect question, you can also ask, okay, what is driving you? Can you identify with our vision? If they say yes, that's an easy answer, right? But you would always have to dig deeper and then why and how and how do you, how do you uh, link that to your life, for example? How do you behave in different situations? So you would, in, in those talks, you would always uh, ask for uh, behavioral situations. So you never ask yes or no questions, but you ask, so I would, for example, Gila would ask you, um, can you uh, name an example where you, uh, let's say, you're, you're doing a party and you want to invite people, how do you select those people, right? And you will explain me how you do that. And I ask you about specific situations, like how have you done that in this situation and in this situation? So that it's, it's always situative and you would have to explain. And this, this is also the same thing for your um, for your values, drivers, and, and also for the vision you're pursuing. And uh, yeah, it, it's about asking, just asking a lot of questions and getting a feeling of why do they go the way they do. And it's also a lot about the, the following question, isn't it? Like I, I call it the follow-up question because usually I think it's very important, as you said, to ask directly for which reason do you want to work for us? And, you know, like <laughs> I had an interview today with a candidate who told me like, oh, I'm just looking for a new job to get a visa for Europe. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. you, you, <laughs> and when you ask him, like, for example, can you explain us, can you explain me a bit what the company is doing? And he, he tells me like, well, I don't know, like, I know you are, you know, I'm not going to say what, because I don't want to talk about my client, but <laughs> uh, when he cannot explain anything about the company, it's already a sign for me that he, if he is just coming And looking for a job for the money and you know what we say if he comes for the money they they will leave at some point for the money as well so i think it's i really agree with you that it's it's very important to identify uh, uh yourself with with the company's vision as an employee and uh, i think the follow-up question and the indirect question are very important like the sometimes me what i've noticed is uh after asking this why do you want to work with us they give you an answer And usually if they are fair uh, or if they are honest with that answer, it will come back during the rest of the interview, the time you spend with them. Uh, like, you know, if people, like when I was interviewing for my previous company uh, in the music industry, you know, lots of people will tell you like, oh, because I want to work, I love music. But then yeah. if you dig a bit deeper, not directly 
after that question, but with different questions, you will ask them, oh, what was the last concert you went you went to? And then they will tell you like the 10 different concerts they went to or the 10 different albums they've listened to like uh, recently. And that usually tells you more, I think, about the people's motivation. It's basically what you just explained. It's putting them in different situations and seeing how they react in these situations. Yeah, it is actually key for every uh, recruitment process or every every talk you should uh, you, you do with those applicants. Um, that is the way how to identify if if if, if it fits or not. And also, uh, just on a on a personal level, you can rather identify with situations and decisions they take rather than a yes or no answer to to see if that there's a harmony between you or not, for example. Yes. And uh, do you, back, have you also noticed that mirroring works pretty well in that case? You know, for, when somebody tells you like, oh, I really love music. And if you say, oh, you love music. And if you do that a couple of times, uh, a couple of times, they will just keep on digging further and you will see if how honest they are with the, with the answers. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, so that brings me to the, Next, uh, do's and don'ts, which is this time a don't. You said don't employ people if any one of the core team has a bad feeling about it. I love that one. Yeah, we actually have a rule um, that uh, everyone can have a veto. So not the not the full 30 people in our team because that would make the process just too uh, too big and too large but uh, within the talent management uh, let's say execution team um, we are five people maybe six sometimes and especially the founders but also the other ones uh, if they have like a weird gut feeling we don't employ because um, and, and that that brought us to where we are I think as I said at the beginning the, the founding team is very diverse but thus uh, very complementary. Um, we all look at people differently. We all we are all different, and um, based on that, we make up our minds in a different way. And uh, it turned out that when we actually employed people, where we said, "Well, th- this might be weird," um, they actually left again quite early um, due to us or due to them. Um, so uh, yeah, the gut feeling is sometimes way better than you think is it something you do with like no question asked if somebody says sorry i don't feel like hiring that person i have bad feeling you don't ask any question you say okay fine mm, i mean you, you would always want to try to uh, let the person explain right how how did this come up and we'll always uh, mirror that and say well I've, i've seen that situation that and that context and not this one you've you've noticed Uh, to see how strong that feeling is or not. But uh, generally, within the process, we have different touch points in the team and also that uh, talent management team. And um, they have seen a lot from that person, from the CV to the hospitation and so on. Uh, and it, at the very end, we say, okay, will we employ or not? And somebody in that round says, I have a weird feeling about this. Then we don't employ that person. Does it mean that you always see every candidate? I mean, the, the the core management team, you are like 30 people now. Does it mean that even for any role in your company right now, they always end up meeting the management team? 
not not necessarily all uh, interns or working students, but full time positions, yes. And the last don't you told me was don't only employ people who aren't better than yourself. Yeah, I, I, I try to I try to um, do don'ts while it's rather a do. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so right. I, I think it was Mark Zuckerberg saying, "Well, always employ people who are better than you uh, or yourself," um, which I like the idea about. So I tried to frame it as a don't that don't only in brackets employ people who aren't better than yourself. In terms of, um, there are different types of jobs where it's not it doesn't make sense to necessarily employ people who are better than you take take an example you have a phd and uh, you want to employ people who uh, build your hardware product they don't necessarily have to be better in terms of knowledge for example but they uh, in that terms they might have better skills in that specific area than yourself and if you take that as your mantra 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 um try to look for people who have skills which you don't have right um so i'd, I'd say it's it's very bad if you uh think in a way that uh, i'll employ that uh that person because uh, i know more than he does or she does and that's why i can let's say control that person and that's not the that that might, might have been in the past in a let's say, a uh, traditional company or a traditional hiring way, but the modern world is different. Uh, you want to empower the people and you want to see uh, that those people have better skills and you want to develop those skills and uh, yeah, just reflect on yourself uh, and feedback within your team if that person actually has skills you don't have. And that's correlating or highly correlating with the do we had before um, considering source a diverse team um, because through that you will uh, most probably always have people who are better in some aspects than you are yourself mm -hmm. totally and I can see the influence of, of Steve Jobs here because I think it's him who said that you should hire people not to tell them what to do but for them to tell you what to do yeah Thank you very much for all these tips and advice. It's very, very useful and I could talk for hours about it, but like, uh, let's not make this episode, this episode too long. Um, let's talk a bit now about your, your next like baby, let's say. Uh, you started a company, or I don't know if it's a company yet, you're going to explain us, uh, but you founded an event called Planet Sustainability uh, that should, people can find on planetsustainability.com dot de sorry german and english here um so can you tell us a bit more about what this is yeah so um i have to tell you the story about it to to see where it ends up basically to to say what it is it is a an online b2b event for finding and offering sustainable business solutions um so as we are a b2b company um, we, in, in our values, in our vision, um, sustainability is a, a very deep anchor. And, um, 
most of our sales is done through direct sales in our company. So we're looking for large key accounts with uh, huge real estate portfolios to generate impact. And um, when uh, in March COVID entered the world, or at least Germany uh, in March, uh, in some countries earlier than that, um, direct acquisition channels uh, went down because um, the people had other concerns. Um, so we had to refocus um, and also look for other channels and uh, especially for pre-qualifying customer leads um, so that if you call them, they don't give you the answer or come on, you don't have better things to do than that because, you know, let's take a, a public administration where uh, those people have to work in home offices, but they don't have laptops, you know. Um, they have different different concerns at that time. It took like maybe eight eight weeks to uh, get them running again. Um, and we were looking for a let's say an online fair, as you would exhibit on a normal fair, uh, and uh, uh, an audience would come, which is rather pre-qualified because they're interested in that topic. We wanted to exhibit on an online fair uh, for sustainability. Now, what we've noticed though is that within the market the uh, analog so offline fairs try to go online but they kept the same concept which doesn't work because online things are working differently how you approach people how you talk to people how you exchange uh, ideas etc so um, that didn't really work out and also for the sustainability space there wasn't any fair out there um, for Looking at sustainability, there were conferences, um, yeah, panels, etc. So all things where you can strengthen your brand if you are a speaker, but you can't do sales because those formats are a, a one-to-end talk, right? You, so you have your panel but, and 300 people are listening but you don't have access to their contact details. You don't know who they are. They, you know, they don't interact. So um, when all the, um, the the state funding programs came up to to rescue the um, the economy and also the startups, um, they were very important. But it you know it took a while until you know money is money is being spent, um, and we were always the on the on the side that. Those programs are very good, but for a startup, it's always even better if you allow them to have more sales channels. Um, because if you generate good sales within that time, you will have higher chances to get better funding afterwards. Then, um, so that was the idea. Um, and because we didn't find that specific niche of event, we said, okay, we're going to found that ourselves. It's actually not a company; it's just a brand of Velisto currently. Um, because you don't want to, you know, uh, put a legal entity in it if you don't know where it ends up next year, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we we initiated plant sustainability for, as, yeah, as a help, as self help for the startup. So um, the the startups don't have to pay. You know, if I if I talk to um, fairs who are trying to go digital, the companies have to pay still three thousand euros to get a virtual 3d booth i'm like okay really i mean that's you know it's a digital event why would i need a 3d booth you know it, it doesn't really make sense to me the, the other formats are more interesting so um the startups uh, only pay very little fee and they get it actually back when they bring their network 
So if they bring customers, for example, because those are pre-qualified people who might be interested in all other 99 solutions available on the platform. Um, and it is a, like a one-day event where uh, the startups basically exhibit and uh, innovators who are CEOs, uh, innovation managers, uh, climate sustainability managers, CSR, and so on, come and scout for solutions. And how is that, how is that scouting happening? I'm curious, because as you said, you want to make it different than the typical online events. So how is, how is that working? Yeah, so we're using a platform which is a startup in Berlin called Talk. And um, they are experts in matching people. So um, as soon as you enter the platform, you will see every participant. And you will, because of the onboarding you do, which is done through specific questions of what your interest is and uh, what you're looking for, but also, for example, what your hobby is, um, you will be matched on a global scale to all other participants in the event. So um, even entering the event, um, and just being there for one hour and not all day will give you uh, the value add to have multiple contacts you see which fit well to your interests and your needs, and you can talk to them. Within the, to within the platform, you can always directly chat, directly go one-on-one -on -one calls, and there's also like a Calendly integrated in there, so you can you know, manage to have uh, appointments to them and so on. And the startup will have a specific profile where you can upload videos, documents, etc. Um, so the, the people can just inform themselves. And then you will have up to five or six people from the startup on the platform you can directly talk to over that profile. And, um, you know, based on that, that setting, you, other formats are uh, integrated, for example, is speed networking. I mean, we, we all know speed, speed dating, speed networking, right? But uh, it is using the, the same global uh, optimization to match the right people. We'll do that three times over the day, over like uh, 30 minutes. You will meet uh, six people uh, each five minutes. And um, it's all meant to bring the right people together without you know, browsing through uh, the participants list and don't know what they're interested in and so on. So it's, it's, uh, a lot through matchmakings. Okay. So it's going to be a very good event to network and to between startups and all these decision makers who are looking for sustainable products and companies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I will ask you, uh, the, the link to the, the talk, uh, app or company, because I can't find it online. I will ask you the link after and I'll, I will add it yep. to the resources of Perfect. this episode. Um, what will be a measure of success for you in one year with that event? Uh, if it happens again and is at least three times bigger than the first time. But so what will be, what is a success for the first time? Which like how, how big should it be? Mm, so we have, we already have a hundred startups online. And based on the people joining from the startups, there are already 300 people from the startups. Um, we have additionally, uh, I think, eight to 10 speakers, sponsors, and partners who are on the platform. But then to get a good matchmaking to those 300 people, you, of course, need at least 300 other people, right? So um, we, we are aiming for 1,000 people on the platform in the end. Um, we have one week to go. 
Um, there's still loads of work to do, but also for everyone listening uh, who's interested in sustainable solutions, that's that's a really good way to just get to know a hundred different solutions from all areas, right? There's like there's mobility, there's energy, there's agriculture, there's uh, plastics, and so on and so on. So very broad scale of of solutions. And for us, it's a success if the startups and the uh, people who are looking for solutions uh, say they found good business contacts. And um, as a startup, I, always, I would always think about how much time do I invest over that day and what's my customer acquisition cost? And so how many customers would I have to actually get through that event? If uh, that works out to have a better customer acquisition cost than your, for example, direct call approach, um, that's definitely a success. Good. Uh, I would actually love to talk about uh, customer acquisition and growth, uh, but I think like although this episode is going to be way too long, then uh, I'd be happy to reinvite you probably in a in one year to or two years to discuss as well your your growth uh, strategy for like for Velisto and probably with with Planet Sustainability if it's uh, still there in three years, which I hope. Yeah, sounds good. Um, let's like finish by all the traditional questions that I ask my guests. So, what's the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? Um, s- stick to your ideas. I mean, keep 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 going. Um, you would always have to uh, verify and get feedback, but at, especially at the beginning, there will be many people say, "Well, that's that's not the right way to go," or "That's." Uh, a bad idea, for example, because they're just not thinking the way you are and and having the vision, maybe. So don't let you stop from them. Um, keep going as soon as it's reasonable. If you get like those hints of yeah, that that could be a thing. And how do you at the other extreme? How do you know that actually you need to change your idea? And keep an eye on the results. I mean. To take our our um, Kickstarter campaign, that, that is a that 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 is a result where you know, okay, that flopped, that didn't work, that doesn't seem to be the right direction, or we are really bad in doing things, but we weren't. So, um, I mean, we 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 get those advi- advices from our shareholders, but also from um, if they haven't been shareholders before uh, or before they were shareholders um, from our advisors. Um, to direct you in a way, um, the best advice or the best guidance is always the customer, I'd say. So if they say, I need that, that's cool. Uh, that's a good advice. If they, if everybody says, oh, that's, that's a dumb idea. Uh, nobody needs that. Um, either you're ro- asking the wrong people because it's not your target group or actually nobody needs that. What's your favorite question to ask uh, candidates during your recruiting process? <laughs> a very good one. Um, the question is, if we don't accept your application, why didn't we? <laughs> oh, that's a really good one. First time I hear it. Yeah, it's a, it's a super good one for self-reflection. Uh, and to be fair, you actually, I'd say 90%, you get that answer you had, which you had the feeling about before. And... Okay. Yeah. So like, yeah. So <laughs> very interesting. So people where you have some doubts about, they would probably tell you about that doubt if that, if that goes well, but for the people that you end up 
hiring. What did they tell you? Usually they actually tell you if, if they have the same feeling about the talks you have, that's, that's already a good thing, right? So if, if they think it is a very different point than you might think, then you didn't talk to another quite good, right? So usually they, they answer the question in a way that they know what their weakness is. Let's say if you have a sales guy, uh, they would, I mean, most of them would say, oh, they are on, I, I can't think of any reason which is always a really bad answer because there are always <laughs> reasons to say no. Um, but it is a common, common thing for, of course, uh, sales guys to be good in selling themselves. So, so they, they, don't have, they don't find any reasons. But uh, I can't remember all of them, but I'd say uh, probably one of the sales uh, people we hired said, well, maybe you say no because I'm not too experienced enough yet which is the thing you can work on, right? So um, if, if you talk about technical stuff, uh, then, then it is rather the case that they say, well, maybe I don't have the right skill set and that will be the thing. Sometimes it's also very interesting that the people um, tell you, maybe our chemistry didn't fit to, to, together. And that's only on the phone call, like the first thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's somehow true. So, um, <laughs> which is super weird, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And, and actually most of the people say, oh, that's a really good question. Never heard that before. So they really have to think about it. Um, and that's good. That's a fantastic question. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, which book would you, uh, recommend entrepreneurs, uh, like you to read? That's a really hard question for me because I, I don't really read a lot of books. I'm more of the, I have to experience things and try things out. Um, I think one of my skills is actually to uh, identify many things and get the knowledge at the point where I need it. Uh, for example, I've, I've read a really good book, which is uh, The Fish Stinkt vom Kopf. So the, the fish stinks from the head. So basically management theory that if the team doesn't work, it's always the manager who's fucking up and not the people, um, which is about how to motivate people, how to interact with them, how to speak on different levels with them and so on. It's a really good book based on a um, fish seller on the Hamburg fish market. Um, re so it's recommendable, definitely. Uh, but I would say in general, I'm not the fan of reading multiple books and then knowing how to do it. As an entrepreneur, I think the, the skill set you a good entrepreneur always has is you do things. You don't just read about it, you do things. So that's why, yeah, I can't really recommend many books because I haven't read many. And is that the same, for example, regarding like trainings, podcasts, blogs, or influencers you would recommend to for, for entrepreneurs and other people? growing a startup like yours, do you, do you have any of these in mind that you, 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 you could recommend? To be fair, I don't have much spare time to, to, to do many of those things. What I can definitely recommend is get professional trainings uh, where you don't have the skill set. So our very successful HR process, that's not from scratch from us, right? We did a coaching. We did two days training on it to then get the skill set of developing it further on our own based on our business. So that is always a recommendation. And that could be any channel. 
So it could be a specific book about it. It could be a specific podcast about it and so on. But um, yeah, try to identify yourself where you need knowledge. Um, but also, I mean, listening to podcasts is a really nice thing. I like, uh, which, which is not for entrepreneurship, but Fest and Flauschig in Germany is really nice, where you just get... Um, just you, you, you get inspiration sometimes. Just, just you know, you, you, for example, listening to our, your podcast now with me will probably inspire some people to rethink their processes, uh, think about how they approach stuff or how to build up their startup. And um, that's very important to, yeah, not just live in your own bubble, but to get your, uh, yeah, get there or where other basically some input to, think about stuff where, for example, myself, it is more, uh, my family and my, my child where, um, my, my wife and child are very, they're also different to me as a person, of course. Um, but then they, they bring a lot of value in me rethinking things also in the company. So you just need your inspirational source, I guess, which could be different for anyone. Uh, tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online. Maybe it's not online because it shouldn't be online. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. Um, I like gardening. I don't think that's online, but you know, I like growing my own plants and uh, cooking with the uh, uh, stuff I've grown there. Oh, do you do you live? A, do you have a garden at home? No, so sadly not. I have a balcony fo uh, face to the north. <laughs> ah, yeah. Pretty bad. But yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to improve on that. <laughs> Now that you mentioned that you are you are dad, do you have any tips for the, the dad entrepreneurs out there? Something you've learned, something you you know uh, that, that has helped you to, to, to go through both like the paternity and uh, to manage both <laughs> paternity and entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think it's uh, rather the decision to take. Um, let's say, the, for example, looking at the timing, which is a very important thing, um, it will never be a good time because you will always be with shitloads of work. Uh, you will always have your, your mind around your company because it's your baby. Um, you're then maybe second baby, right? Um, but um, think about it in a way that It doesn't matter at which timing you do it. You, you shouldn't wait for it because, I mean, that you know, you, if you think of phases in a startup, uh, you'll have your seed phase, series A, series B. When is the best time for it? You will always have challenges which are bigger than the ones before. So it'll never get better, actually. So we just said, well, then we can do it anyway. So um, it's more of that decision-taking process and then um, try to keep a balance And that's through communication. Um, that's the, probably the only advice I can give. And you will find the models to, to handle it. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it'll never be a, probably a, a good timing. Yep. Thank you for the, the advice. Do you have one last thing you'd like to share with the entrepreneurs of our audience? Where, you know, where can they find you, your company? Are you hiring now? Are you looking for, you're apparently looking for funding? Uh, but do you have some messages for the potential investors listening to this podcast? So this is your time now to share whatever you want uh, with our listeners. 
Right. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned at the beginning, we're actually in in funding. Yes. Uh, Series A, we're raising a, a couple of millions. So if anyone is interested, always reach out through LinkedIn. is very uh, easy. Um, make sure you uh, put a message on on your inquiry. Otherwise, I uh, usually don't accept uh, invites. Um, and also, yeah, if anyone interested in sustainable solutions, um, visit Planet Sustainability. Uh, it'll, it'll be a big thing. Um, you will meet many great people um, of the same mindset. Um, that's always good. So if you want to reach out, uh, I'm happy to uh, if you explain why. <laughs> right. And so always uh, leave a short message. I will leave the, the link to uh, your LinkedIn profile and planetsustainability.de and Vilistu as well on the, on the resources. Perfect. So uh, Christoph, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I wish you all the best with your company and you know, keep on making this world a better place to live in. And thank you so much again for today. Have a nice day. Thanks, Jill. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way you will be notified of the new episodes, but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season. Plus, for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs, and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way, we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children, and our planet. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.